You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from John 10, chapter 40, verse 40, chapter, chapter 11, 54. We went away, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea, to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whenever you ask, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, 
but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they, believe, they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone, we, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he was prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, we, for the last several weeks, uh, months, after, actually, if you go back a little bit further, we've been going through the Gospel of John. This is uh, a great, great book of the Bible. They're all great, uh, but John's Gospel is exceptional. Um, and, and one of the things that John is concerned about, in fact, I would say the main thing that John is concerned about as he writes out his Gospel account is helping his reader understand who Jesus is. 
At the beginning of his gospel, he says, come and see. There's a standing invitation. Um, Come and see. Come and lay eyes on Jesus. Now, of course, this is the invitation for those who are around during the first century while Jesus walked the face of the earth. But in another sense, the readers here, John is inviting us to come and see through the eyes of faith. See who Jesus is, that we may know him and believe in him and find life in his name. And to help us move from this coming and see that we might believe and find life in his name, John uses two devices to help us throughout this journey in his, in his gospel account. He uses one, Jesus' own words, specifically the seven I am statements that we see throughout John's gospel. We've seen many of these throughout uh, the past few months. We've seen four of them so far. And these I am statements are meant to be sort of a callback, a reference back to the burning bush in accidents where God appears to Moses and discloses himself. He says, I am who I am. Now, Jesus, God in flesh, is disclosing himself to his followers. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door or the gate. I am the good shepherd. And Jesus also is not just using his words to disclose who he is. He's, he's using his works or his, his miracles. Now, throughout, if you survey all of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that there's just a plethora of, of miracles that Jesus does. Now, when, when John writes the gospel of John, he's very selective about what, what miracles that he's gonna document. In fact, at the end of the book, he'll tell us, you know, Jesus did a lot more miracles than what I documented here, but John was, uh, that Jesus had performed. And so up to this point, we've seen six works, six miracles Jesus has performed. One was uh, turning water into wine, which is kind of cool. Uh, there are two back-to-back healings that Jesus performed. Then he fed 5,000 on a hillside. Then Jesus walked on water. And then, most recently, he healed the blind. Now, today we are coming, we're beginning to wrap up the first half of John's gospel. Um, the first half of John's gospel is called the, the book of signs um, because it, it's speaking to the miracles. And today we see the end of the signs that, that John chronicles for us. And we're going to be transitioning here in the next couple of weeks into the book of glory. That's the second part. Um, and so to, to help us with this, to help us understand who Jesus is, why it matters, um, today, the Apostle John is going out with a bang. He provides for us the seventh and final miracle of Jesus' uh, ministry and the fifth I am statement when Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. And what John is doing here for us today is he is inching us closer to comprehending the glory of Jesus Christ. Now today, it's a long passage. We've got a lot to cover. And and just to be upfront with you, there's no way I can get into every little nook and cranny, every little detail. There's just so much to do. But before I dig in to what we are going to explore today, I want to give you the the 30,000-foot view as to why this matters, why you should listen, why for the next 45 minutes you should dial into this. And it's really simple to present this to you because in verses 40 at the end of chapter 10 to uh, verse 1 of John 11, we're, we see the context of this pericope, the context of this, this event that's happening. Um, we're told that it is in Bethany. Jesus and his disciples have come to Bethany, this town where Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus lives. And the, the name Bethany means the house of misery. 
So the context of this, and I think whoever came up with that name, the, the marketing department of that city, the city council maybe could have done a little bit better. Um, not very appealing. I don't know how many people are wanting move into the house of misery, but it is what it is. Uh, so we have the context, the house of misery, and then you have the object of this whole pericope, that, that being Lazarus, who we'll see um, is sick, then dies, and then is put in a tomb. And so what we see is, you put these two together, you have God helps in the house of misery. See, this is why you should listen today. It, it, it dials us into the reality that God is near to the brokenhearted. God helps us when we find ourselves in the house of misery. And no matter what you might be facing in life, no matter what's going on in your life today, this is the reality that Jesus can help. Jesus is near. Now, Jesus helps us not in the same way where a kid helps mom bake a cake or, or clean up a room, right? That kind of help is not a very strong help. In fact, that kind of help means that you're probably gonna have to make more cleaning, uh, go, go behind, clean up the extra flour got spilled on the countertop. You'll have to go back through and wipe down all of the extra fingerprints that were done in the name of wanting to help mom. Um, that is not the kind of help that Jesus provides. No, Jesus gives a, a strong help a real help in the house of hardship because Jesus has a true and real power. What we're gonna see here is that there is no end to his power. There's no limit to his power. There's no way to max it out. There is not a single thing that Jesus cannot overcome, not even death. So if you're in a place where you feel like you're in the house of misery, where your heart feels weary, where, where emotion swells, grief and anger, frustration. The place we need to look is to cry for strong help. And this is precisely what he's going to show to uh, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus in John chapter 11. Now Jesus starts in John 11 by showing us that there is a serious crisis at hand. Um, his, his buddy, we're told that, that Jesus loves Lazarus. They're, they're dear friends. In fact, Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, the, the sibling cohort. Um, we're told three times in verse 3, verse 5, verse 35, that Jesus loves this family, and yet Lazarus is very sick. And in verse 2 of chapter 11, Mar Mar Mary, um, the sister of Lazarus who's ill, sends word to Jesus and, and basically invites him, it's sort of notifying Jesus, your buddy Lazarus is sick, but it's also sort of an indirect plea to come and help. Saying to Jesus, please help, Lazarus is sick, we need your help here, would you come quickly? Now later on in the passage, we're told that Jesus is not very far geographically from what's going on in, in Bethany. He's, he's real close by, about two miles away from their household. And, and knowing that Jesus loves this family so much, we, we might expect that Jesus sort of sprints that two miles, running there to save his, his buddy, because as we've seen earlier in Jesus' ministry, he has the power to save, the power to heal. Like you'd think that he would run into Bethany, lay his hands on Lazarus, and once and for all, that, that illness 
go away. Or even like we saw in John chapter four with the official son, where Jesus has the power to heal someone from a distance, doesn't even have to look at him, doesn't have to put his hand on them. You'd think that Jesus, filled with compassion for his dear friend, would do this. Instead, and it might feel, be a little perplexing to us, verse six says that Jesus stays in the place where he was for two days longer. So, so the urgency of Mary's plea, come, Jesus, help my brother, he's sick. Jesus kind of hangs out for two extra days. Now, before we interpret this as indifference on Jesus' part, before we look at this and say, well, Jesus, it seems like he lacked compassion, that he had no sense of urgency. Jesus was clearly more preoccupied with what he had going on than what he, Lazarus had going on. Before we do any of that, we have to view things through Jesus' eyes. And Jesus keys us into what he's thinking, what he's perceiving here in verse four. When Jesus heard it, when he heard of the news of, of Lazarus' illness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, right here we see Jesus' eyes, his, his vision, what he saw unfolding through this whole ordeal. His eyes were set on glory. Glory of the Father and glory of the Son. When bad things happen to us, we oftentimes look for the cause and look for the fix. We tend to be pragmatists in, in this sense. We want whatever is hard to go, we want to identify the problem and we want to figure out the solution so that we can step out of that and go back to life as normal, back to how things should be. We ask the questions, how did we get here? How do we get out of this? Because a lot of times, that, that difficulty, that misery is in an unpleasant place to be. Now, what's interesting here is that wasn't Jesus' concern. Jesus was not concerned about identifying the cause or the fix. What Jesus was concerned about was, what is the purpose of this? What is God doing? What is God breaking in me of? What is God doing in me? Jesus was concerned with the purpose. Now, this is something to keep in mind here, that as we face hardships, it's, it's not a bad thing to identify the cause, right? I think that if you go to the Proverbs, it tells us how we get out of hardships. Um, it helps us kind of live wisely so we, we escape the unavoidable pitfalls of, of misery and hardship. But at the same time, part of living life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes tells us, is that we're going to find ourselves in the house of misery, and rather than always trying to make sense of it, how we got here, how we get out of it, sometimes it's better to ask the question of, what is God trying to do? What is God's purpose? I believe this is what it looks like to have our minds set on things above. In Colossians 3.2, we're told, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is Jesus' mindset here. 
Jesus' mind is set on things above. He, he knows the purpose of the Father. He knows what God is trying to do. He's trying to, he's, his intent here, the purpose behind this is God intends to glorify himself through the Son. Because Jesus knows the purpose of the Father, he knows his next move. In verse seven, he tells his disciples, hey, we're gonna go back to Judea. We're gonna go to the, back to the place where we just came from. If you remember back in John chapter 10, Jesus had just, uh, it's been this really interesting dynamic with Jesus and the, and the religious leaders, basically from John chapter seven through John chapter 10, where Jesus keeps teaching, he keeps disclosing himself to his followers and even, even the, the religious leaders who are around to listen. And more and more as Jesus is teaching, the religious leaders hate what Jesus is talking about. They hate him. They, they've tried to kill him. They pick up stones to kill him on multiple occasions. And so Jesus saying, hey, we need to go back to Judea, the place that the disciples are saying, Jesus, we were just there. And the last time we were there, these religious leaders, they set out to kill you. Are you sure? Is this the right move? Is this what you want to do? And the disciples protest so much so that in verse 16, you see Thomas, who scripture doesn't... He, Scripture's really honest about what Thomas is like, uh, especially after the resurrection. Uh, he's known as Doubting Thomas. And, and Thomas, is, is, he says, he, you just see his, his, his mentality of resignation. He thinks going back to Judea is certain death. And so he says, um, yeah, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Christ. This, oh, wait, no, 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 sorry. Uh, I jumped ahead too far. I'm trying to find my spot here. He says in verse, let me find it, 16, thank you. Now I'm trying to, okay, okay, okay. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. Real optimist here, all right? All right, fine, let's go. We're probably gonna die. Now, even, even with having his sick friend, even with these religious leaders who are intent on killing Jesus, in fact, you end, you, as, as we end chapter 11, get towards the end of it, you see that their intent to kill Jesus becomes more and more obvious. As Jesus is dealing with a sick friend and death threats, Jesus isn't frazzled. See, something like that oftentimes would rattle our cage. Something like that, and oftentimes it takes a lot less than that to get our our undies in a bundle, to get us all fired up and, and anxious and nervous and, and unsettled and, and paranoid and, and it just worked up. But Jesus isn't frazzled. In fact, he's, he's composed. Now, how, how is it possible for Jesus, for a guy who's got a lot simple for him to, to remain subdued, to be composed? Well, there's a really strange phrase in verse nine. Uh, one that for a long time I've read it and I'm like, I, I literally had a, a, a question mark in my Bible because I've been trying to make sense of this for years. Like, what, what is he trying to say? What do he say? He's saying here, and it's in verse nine, where Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light of him because, oh, excuse me, because the light is not in him. Now this, this phrase, it's, it makes sense, 
But what the, the trouble for me has always been is like, how does this phrase make sense in this context? What is Jesus trying to say? Well, when Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Basically saying the time is still daytime. It's still working hours. There's still work for me to do. So as the disciples are saying, listen, Jesus, it's not safe for you to go back. He's saying, I still have work to do. My father still has things that he's assigned for me to do that I must go and do. And then he says this, this whole piece about walking to the day. If you walk in the light, you won't stumble. If you walk in the darkness, you will stumble. He's saying, this is what's like, the will of God. When you know the will of God and you're walking in the will of God, you will not stumble. God will uphold you. And Jesus here is walking. He is, in fact, the light of the world, but he's walking in the will of God. He knows what it is the Father has for him to do. And so he, he presses on. Now, later on in, in John chapter 10, Jesus extends to us the very same invitation to walk in the light with him. And we see John taking this, this theme and working out later in his epistle in 1 John 1, 7, he says that we, that we are to walk in the light as Jesus walks in the light. Right, yeah, and he's tying us in to know the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? Hey, we've been called by God, we've been saved by God through the gospel, we've been saved for good works, as Ephesians 2.10 tells us. That there are things that the Father has appointed for us to do, to be a godly spouse, to be godly parents, to be a faithful member of the church, to work hard for your employer as unto the Lord, to live life as a missionary, making known the excellencies of Christ. These are all things that God has called us into as his people, that, that we are to, as we have the light of the world with us, the spirit of God, we are to give ourselves to these works. And as Psalm 37, 23 says, that as we delight in the way of God, God establishes our steps. See, there, there's this invitation to walk in the light. Jesus knew that there was work for him to do, and so too there is work for us to do, church. And knowing the purpose of God, Jesus presses on. He tells his disciples, hey, we're, we're off to Bethany now. And he tells them, Lazarus is asleep. Now, they don't understand. Like, this, is a, this is a phrase that, that um, throughout the Hebrew scriptures is often tied to, it's a nice way of saying he, he kicked the bucket, okay? He says, Lazarus is asleep, um, He's dead, but, but the disciples don't understand that. They think that Jesus is actually talking about, he, he's really just tired. He's fallen asleep. But in fact, he clarifies, he's, he's died. Two days, he's notified of Lazarus' illness, spends two days where he is. Jesus, through revelation of God, knows he's, he's passed away. He says, all right, we're going back to Bethany. Now, Jesus says another strange thing in verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then verse 15, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Okay, that sounds like Jesus is just heartless now. So this buddy, now he says, I'm glad he kicked the bucket. I'm glad I wasn't there. But then he says again, here's the purpose. Why? Here's why. So that you may believe. And he says, but let us go to him. 
Now, Jesus, again, he knows his next move. He knows the Father's plan. He knows what's going to happen when he gets back to Lazarus. And he gets there, and we're told that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, this, this time domain is significant. It was, it was sort of a, a, there's no real biblical um, validation for this, but it was kind of a, a commonly held belief among the Jewish people that, that if somebody died for four days, that their spirit sort of hovered around. And it was possible that, that, that they could be resuscitated. Um, and so it was sort of like a, a wives' tale folklore sort of thing. So Jesus was intentional in letting four days of time Elapse. And this just tells us that Lazarus is really dead. There's, there's no coming back from the dead. In fact, they're so confident that he's dead is that he's, he's been wrapped up in, in the burial cloths. He's been placed in, in a tomb. And so as Jesus makes his way back, he gets finally to Bethany. Um, Lazarus' sister, Martha, goes out to greet Jesus. And she says to Jesus in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it's, it's interesting because Mary, who Jesus will talk to next, says us something very similar in verse um, 20, 32. Um, he says, now, when Mary came to Jesus, uh, came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, there's, there's a lot of debate uh, among commentators about what's going on here, about the tone, the intent of what these ladies say to Jesus. Is this accusatory? Like, come on, Jesus, if you would have just showed up, if you would have got here on time, this would have never happened. Or, or is this more of a profession of faith? Is this something where they say like, oh, Jesus, we know that you have power and we know that, that you have the power to change things. Now, I don't think it's one or the other. I think that it's, it's likely to be both because you see this profession that comes right after Martha says, if you would have been here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. She says, whatever you ask God for, God does, right? He, she, she's professing that Jesus has the power. He has the ability to change things. But at the same time, you can't help but see the undertones of, of accusation that even you see with the crowd later on in verse 37 where they're like, you know, couldn't have Jesus done something? Isn't this not the guy that, that gave sight back to the line? Could he have not done something? There seems to be a little bit of ac accusation against Jesus as well. It's, it's mixed. Now for mere mortals, profound grief often gets entangled with anger. I think you see this with both Martha and Mary. Both of them are deeply grieved. You see a whole community coming alongside of them to grieve, as is the, the Jewish custom. They're grieving for the loss of their brother Lazarus. But, but these accusations that, that are sort of laced in there seem to be a bit of anger sort of, of, of swelling up as well. This happens for us. That, that, that anger and grief oftentimes get intertangled together, that, that we get, maybe something bad happens, something tragic happens, and perhaps we get angry at ourselves. Maybe we contributed to this bad thing, or, or maybe we get angry at other people who, who had a role in this bad thing coming about. Oh, and I would say there are times where we even get angry at God. That if 
As Matthew 10, 29 tells us, God is sovereign, that he's control over all things. It says that are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are, even the, even the hairs on your head and, and, and not a single one of these falls without God say so. And so if we're looking at, at something tragic, then there's this inclination of, of, of blame, of pointing the finger at God as he could have done so. He's responsible for this. He, at least he has he's control over this. He could have done something different. This is problematic. This tendency that we have. Because in this, it, it, it shows a lapse of faith and trust. In, in this attitude specifically towards God, it says, I don't, believe God only always does what is good, right, and perfect. It it, it suggests that God makes mistakes. Now, this is why I I shared a book with you guys a few weeks ago called Uprooting Anger. And, And in this book, Robert Jones, the author says, anger against God is always wrong in that it accuses God of evil. It's it's never okay for us to be angry at God. And on this subject, John Calvin has great insights as he he spends time preaching on Job's life. Job, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, it's one of the most depressing and, and also comforting stories that we have in our Bible. Job was a righteous man that, that God allowed Satan, the enemy, to, to basically overwhelm with hardships. And the whole objective that Satan had in this basically said, hey, Job only blesses your name. Job only worships you because you keep giving him good things and good things and good things. And I'm gonna show you that that Job is really just a fair weather fan. I'm gonna bring hardship upon hardship and he is going to turn and curse you. And God says, give it a shot. Now this is, this blows our mind. This is perplexing to us. Why would God allow this to happen? But in this, John Calvin points to some great insights for us, specifically when it comes to anger that we might feel towards God. He says this, I got it on the screen here, it's a long quote, so follow along. Why is it that men fret so when God sends them things entirely contrary to their desire, except that they do not acknowledge that God does everything by reason and that he has just cause? For if we had well imprinted on our hearts all that God does is founded in good reason, it is certain that we would be ashamed to chafe so against him when, I say, we know that he has just occasion to dispose thus of things as we see. Now, therefore, it is especially said that Job attributed to God nothing without reason. That is to say that he did not imagine that God did anything which was not just and equitable. As soon as God does not send what we have desired, we dispute against him. We bring suit. Not that we appear to do this, but our manner shows that this is nevertheless our intent. We consider every blow. And why has thus happened? But from what spirit is this pronounced? From a poisoned heart. As if we said, the thing should have been otherwise. I see no reason for this. Meanwhile, God will be condemned among us. 
This is how men exasperate themselves. And in this, what do they do? It is as if they accuse God of being a tyrant or a harebrain who asked only to put everything in confusion. Such horrible blasphemy blows out the mouths of men. However, the Holy Spirit wished to tell us that if we wish to render glory to God and to bless his name properly, we must be persuaded that God does nothing without reason. Cruelty or ignorance as if he did things in spite and unadvisedly, but let us acknowledge that he proceeds in everything with admirable justice, with goodness and infinite wisdom, so that there's only entire uprightness or equity in all that he does. In other words, God only always does what is good, right, and perfect. See, when we come against hardships, when we come across difficulties like this, how we process hard things reveals if we really believe God is who he says he is. This is part of the trials that test our faith. This is part of the refiner's fire that the Lord brings us through, that our faith may be like precious gold. See, we, we see this human tendency that Martha and Mary have, both of true grief, but also this, this anger, this accusation pointed at Jesus, pointed at God the Father. Now, what's interesting as we see their response that's tainted, that, that it's right for them to grieve, but the anger they have towards God is misplaced. What we see is Jesus steps into grief himself. But the way he, he steps into it is different than how they step into it. See, Jesus, he sees the grief. We're told actually after, after he talks with um, Mary, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her that they're also weeping. So you've got a bunch of people crying over the death of Lazarus and Jesus, we're told, he was deeply moved. Like Jesus isn't this stoic robot. Like, oh, I know the plan of God, it's no big deal. You guys are getting worked up over. Like Jesus actually entered into the house of mourning. He experienced grief, this, this, emotion, this emotive side of our humanity. Jesus, as, as the word incarnate, showed us what this looks like in its perfection. And so we see in verse 34, he was deeply moved. And in his spirit, he was greatly troubled. Now, Jesus, we see here, the, the, the English tra translation of this um, is soft. Um, it says greatly troubled, but, but a more, um, more literal translation would be that Jesus was irate that Jesus is indignant or furious. Now, so here we see Jesus is grieving just as Mary and Martha are, and, and there's, there's a kind of anger here. Mary and Martha had an anger that was directed toward Jesus and his lack of activity, but Jesus' anger is not directed toward God. It's directed toward sin and death. See, Jesus stands here in, in the midst of grief, 
feels the wave of sorrow come up over him and is indignant and furious, not at God the Father, but the fact that humanity, the apex of God's creation, God's image bearers, are subjected to sin, death, the grave, and decay. Jesus is looking at the fact that his friend is dead because in Genesis chapter three, sin entered into the world. There there was this breaking in God's design of the way that things were to be to way that we wanted things to be that totally derailed God's creative world. And, And Jesus looks at that and he sees the heartbreak of that reality. He sees the futility of trying to do life on our own way. And Jesus has this anger because he knows that humans were meant to live forever. You and I, we were made to live forever. In the Garden of Eden, God created two important trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he said that if you eat of this tree, surely you will die, and the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that would have nothing to do with it. They would stay away from it. But the tree of life, they had access to that that they could have ate from that tree. And in this, we see God's desire for us is is to live forever. But what happened was that Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with this came a death sentence. In fact, that we're all born into. All of us enter into this world with a death sentence that the wages of sin is death. And what Jesus is angry at here is seeing his beloved, seeing those who have been made in the image of God being defiled by the effects of sin and death. Have this, this, this dreadful future. And while we see Jesus entering into the house of grief, we see, we see that Jesus weeps, which is the shortest verse of the Bible. We see Jesus a couple times here being moved, being deeply moved. But what we see here is that Jesus is not helpless. Jesus knows exactly what God is trying to or will accomplish through him. And Jesus tells Martha early on in the conversation, he tells her, Lazarus will rise. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I know at the end of, of time, where there's this resurrection. She, she's, she's thinking in the stream of the Pharisees. They have this, there's a big discussion, this b- debate between the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection, uh, an afterlife, and the Pharisees who did believe that there would be this resurrection from the day, dead at the end of time. She says, yeah, I believe that he'll be raised at the end of time. There'll be this kind of resurrection. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's true. But I'm telling you that he will rise now. And this just shows us that that Martha, it just kind of flies over her head. She didn't understand completely who was standing in front of her talking to her. And so Jesus reveals himself in verse 25. He says, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. See, what's significant here is that that Jesus, Martha already knew there was something special about Jesus, but here Jesus discloses himself even further. 
It's not just that Jesus has the power to heal. It's not just that Jesus has the power to bring a a sort of a resurrection. It is that fact that Jesus is the life. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the power, the restorer, the life giver that gives life to those who are perishing and, and those who receive his life will never die again. Even though they die, they will live. And Jesus, he shows his power. He he goes to the tomb. He he takes all of his friends, excuse me. He says, let's go to the tomb together. Verse 38, and then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there's gonna be an odor for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said to the father, I thank you that you have heard me. I I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind. We see the power, we see the life, the resurrection of Jesus being demonstrated in the life, I guess rather in the death of his friend Lazarus. Jesus shows his command over the grave. In fact, it's a joke that uh, Jesus had to be specific, very specific about um, calling Lazarus out of the grave by using his, his first name, calling Lazarus out by name specifically because if he said just come out, the whole, everybody in the grave would come out. That's how powerful the voice of Jesus is. Jesus shows his command over death, over his, his friend Lazarus, beckons him out of the grave. And you might ask, well, why why did Jesus do this? It's not just to alleviate the tears. It's not just because Jesus wanted to provide some sort of respite for those who were mourning. Because Lazarus, he's he's gonna die again. People will one day again grieve over the death of Lazarus. But Jesus did this so that people would see, they would witness his power over death and the grave, and they would believe in him. In fact, this is, this is the prayer. When Jesus call, cries out to God, he's like, I, I, I thank you that you hear me. I know that you always hear me. I'm not doing this for myself, but I'm doing this so other people who are standing here, so the people on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wanted people to see his power over death and the grave and so that they would believe in him. And just a few weeks later in this story, as we move to Good Friday, that the power would be proved again as Jesus would enter the house of misery himself. Jesus would face a crooked trial. He would be ridiculed tortured and killed on a Roman death device. And then by the power of God, on the third day, he would be raised again. He'd be raised again, never to die again. 
This is what 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 20 tells us, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. See, this was part of God's plan. The anguish of the cross the grief that Jesus' disciples would face for those three days. It was all part of God's plan. In fact, uh, with there, there, there's a prophecy towards the end of this that, that gets embedded here um, through, through Caiaphas, who's the high priest of the day. Um, he, he doesn't know he's prophesying, but God uses this, this man who will later be responsible for Jesus' death to, to issue this prophecy. In verse 50, he says, um, uh, it is better... Do you not understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying, but, but this is all part of God's purpose. Because of this, this one man who would die, he would die for the sins of all God's people. That all of, of, of sin's wages would be placed upon him. He would absorb them. That he would issue us forgiveness of sins. He would bring us into new life. And this is exactly how Jesus finds us. Exactly like Lazarus. Cold, dead, and in the grave. We're told that before Jesus comes to find us, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. But by the grace of God and the power of the resurrection, new life, but a new life that that makes us children of God. We share with our big brother Jesus, with our father God, that we're given real abundant life that Jesus came in this world to give us. And this life is backed by the power of God. So even, and this, is, this blows my mind, that even when, when, when Paul talks about how, how even though we're sorrowful, we're always rejoicing. Why is that? Because the power of God is at work in us. One day, everything sad will become untrue. God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Yes, there's pain in this life. Yes, there's heartache and misery. But God is working in such a profound way. The resurrection life is, is inching itself forward and forward that one day everything bad, everything sad is untrue. And in this, God gets the glory. In this, Christ is exalted. In this, our, our faith is strengthened. And so as you might be sitting here this morning wondering, how am I going to get through this hard thing? I got this thing going on with work. I got this going on with my kid. My marriage is in a tough spot. I got a health issue. Jesus has proven himself mighty over sin, death, and the grave. There is nothing, there's nothing he cannot handle. And so let us entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, to the one who has all power over life and death and see that God is glorified in all things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your wisdom and might you have overcome the grave, that you have worked on our behalf to ensure our salvation, 
that as we were dead in our sins and trespasses, it is by your power that you have made us alive with Christ. God, bless us, help us, strengthen our faith that we may believe. Help us, Lord, to walk according to your ways. As there is still light, would we walk in the good works in which you've called us to? Would the light of Christ shine in our hearts and in our minds so that we would see you as you truly are, to render the worship and praise that is due to your name, that our lives would be used as a a testimony of your power and might, God, and you would be exalted in all things. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in your son's name, amen. amen.